Welcome to the biggest thing to hit the financial advisory ESG community, environmental, social, and governance. I'm Jonathan Kavaznik, CHFC Wealth Advisor. With over 25 years advisory experience, I've been advising clients so they can make a positive global impact. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Jonathan Kavaznik, Cherokee Investment Financial Advisor here at Bank Cherokee, and we have some really exciting information to share today on taxes. Uh, many of you probably think taxes might be a little boring, which I, I feel that way sometimes too. But today, I think we're going to have some really cool ideas that you're going to be able to implement and think about and utilize when you go forward thinking about how this year is going to work for your taxes, but also thinking about things you could still do for 2021 in regards to your tax returns for that season as well. I'm going to make a few comments here. Uh, hopefully, we're going to go about 45 minutes. If you have questions that you would like to ask, feel free to go into the question uh, queue there, type in your question, and Landon and I will be able to review that. Um, I like the idea that you can ask your questions throughout the presentation so that it's timely and we're kind of talking about that topic. So don't feel like you're interrupting, just feel like that's a good time to get your answers and other people who are attending are gonna feel the same way. We're gonna really appreciate the interaction and the opportunity to ask timely questions based on things that you're trying to consider. And because I'm a financial advisor and not a CPA or a tax advisor, I just wanna point out these are great ideas to utilize with your advisors, but make sure you check with your tax consultant before you do any of these ideas and make sure that they're really appropriate for what you're trying to do. So with um, that, I'm gonna start in with the presentation. Uh, everyone can follow along. And again, feel free to ask questions as you see appropriate uh, inside the uh, uh, webinar. All right, everyone, here we go. Hold on, we're gonna go a little fast, but I think you'll find it entertaining and very educational. You know, so talk about tax strategies today in the current landscape. So in the final weeks of 2017, uh, Congress passed a comprehensive tax reform plan, one of the biggest in a long time, reducing tax rates for individuals and businesses and making some modifications to our deductions. So if we think about the bill represents the largest change to the tax code since President Reagan did it in 1986. And so what we wanna talk about is President Trump signed the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in December of 2017. And the broad changes changed some of the impact on individuals, estates, trusts, corporations, and small businesses. In the meantime, they tried to simplify the tax code. And in some ways they did, in some ways they didn't. So we're gonna go over a little bit about what they eliminated, what they simplified, and some of the new rules that they implemented. And finally, we're gonna go over the tax landscape and the rules that are gonna be scheduled to end here in 2025, okay? Because that's the sunset rule. So all of these ideas we're gonna talk about are in the current landscape. Uh, some of the ideas are gonna uh, maybe end in 2025 and some of them may not, but that's kind of the sunset rule as to what they passed and how things are gonna work. All right, so. John, I don't think we're seeing your current slide. Try and advance once. Um, yep, so I did advance here. Uh, we're still seeing the disclosure slide. There we go. Topics Are we good for now? Today. Looks good. Okay, okay. excellent. Topics Thanks. for today. All right. So understanding the current landscape, we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to review considering ideas and strategies that you'll be able to utilize in the current landscape and the current environment. So understanding the current landscape, what does that mean? So right now we have a pretty favorable tax environment if we think about uh, historically. And some people might 
make the case that it's high and some people might make the case it's not, but historically it's, it's fairly low relative to where it's been in the history, right? So current taxpayers like ourselves are really benefiting from a favorable environment just on income taxes, but also on estate and gift taxes. So remember on the previous slide, we need to talk about the fact that the government is trying to raise revenue and they're looking for ways to do that, but we need to consider the impact of some of the new rules that took effect in 2018 and also how the marginal tax rates overall were lowered, right? So however many popular deductions were eliminated, which a lot were, which we'll talk about, that they eliminated some of the favorable tax deductions that we were getting, things like miscellaneous deductions and deductions for state and local taxes, which a lot of times they use the acronym SALT, is limited now only to $10,000. And combined with the fact that the standard deduction has already now doubled nearly what it was prior to the act of 2018, Almost all taxpayers, about 90% of us, are going to claim the standard deduction on our tax return instead of getting to itemize. You know, so on a positive note, though, some people were subject to the alternative minimum tax, and that's been scaled back uh, dramatically. So not as many people are really affected by that. And according to the Tax Policy Center, only about 200,000 taxpayers actually would owe an alternative minimum tax, right? And so some of us might not know what that is, but it had an effect on those people who were limited in their ability to reduce their taxable income. And there was a way for the government to an IRS to have an alternative way to tax them and get some extra revenue from those individual taxpayers. Before the law, it was about 5 million individuals were subject to that. And now after the law, it's about 200,000. So you can see drastically reduced. And then with respect to us giving gifts in the states, uh, there's a very favorable environment right now. And most estates are not really subject to gift tax or an estate tax. So we'll talk about that. Right now, the number, just to give you a, a reference, is only about 1,700 taxable estates will be in existing this year. And that's down from about 5,500 taxable estates prior years. So it's a pretty significant drop that, that isn't really very many estates that are subject to an estate tax when you think about how many people have an estate issue that they're dealing with and passing along their assets, right? And lastly, because of the strict budget rules related to the passage of the law, most provisions, including the lower tax rates, are scheduled to expire in 2025, as I mentioned, the sunset. So again, keep in mind some of these you'll want to maybe take advantage of sooner as opposed to later and implement these ideas, but some of these ideas are probably going to go away potentially in 2025 unless they extend them. All right. So here's some key figures, right? Let's look at those for 2021. As a reminder, the top ordinary income tax bracket under the old rules was 39.6. So if we think about that, the highest tax rate you would be in was 39.6%. Now, one area of significant change in the tax code is our deductions. As I mentioned, you know, the standard deduction has nearly doubled. And so if we look at it that way, more taxpayers are claiming the standard deduction rather than being able to itemize. And before the tax law, roughly about a third of taxpayers were able to itemize and utilize that technique. Now going forward, basically approximately 10% of the individuals are gonna to wanna to itemize overtaking the standardized deduction. And so if you look at the chart, you can see the standardized deduction for a single person is 12,950 and for a couple is 25,900. And so if you look at that number, that's the number that you'll get automatically without worrying about any deductions that you might qualify for. And if your deductions don't go higher than that by itemizing, then you're just gonna use those numbers. And that's what this means by, I no longer have to itemize and I no longer have to worry about 
that situation, but it also means there's certain things I thought I was deducting that I may not actually be deducting anymore. And so we're gonna go over a little bit of that. The other thing is the mortgage interest has changed. So a lot of times we're looking at our mortgages and thinking that it's deductible and therefore we should continue to have a mortgage and get to deduct the interest because it goes against our income. Well, that also came along with the new rules and said that you can only deduct debt on your mortgage on a $750,000 debt or lower. So what does that mean? That means it was a million dollars, but for example, if you have a $900,000 mortgage on your home, you're only gonna to get to write off the interest, interest that's connected to $750,000 of that debt, not the entire 900,000, right? So this debt can include a second mortgage, it can include the first mortgage, but the total debt on your home is not gonna be able to exceed $750,000 for you to try to use the interest deduction amount related to that loan. So interest on home equity lines also kind of changed. And so it's a little bit of a, a rule change, but some people are getting creative and you might get creative in the way you look at it and figure out how to make sure you get the deduction. But the rule is supposed to be now, it's only deducted if you use the proceeds from a home equity loan to buy, build, or improve your own individual home that is tied to the loan, right? So that's a little different. Some people would take a home equity loan, they'd go out and buy a car, they'd go out and buy a camper, they'd go out and buy a motorcycle. That rule has changed and those things do not qualify under the current rules to be able to deduct that interest, even if it's a home equity loan, if you didn't use the proceeds and tie it to your residence and doing some sort of work or improvement. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at those types of loans and those types of interest uh, deductions, whether or not you still qualify or don't qualify. Also state and local taxes, the acronym SALT, right? So when I have property taxes or I have local taxes that I paid, in a lot of cases it made sense for me in the past to put that as an itemized deduction. Well, the cap right now is $10,000 regardless of what it actually is. So keep that in mind that you're gonna be limited to a $10,000 SALT deduction regardless of whether you have a higher property tax or a lower property tax. That's the most you're gonna to get to deduct against your income taxes um, on your tax returns. Other deductions that were repealed, it used to be that you could have casualty losses that you could deduct, meaning like property casualty, and the rule still applies if it's a federal disaster declared, but it doesn't apply if it's just a regular uh, property casualty loss. Alimony payments are not deductible anymore and moving expenses uh, are not deductible anymore with the exception unless it's related to the armed services. And the last kind of example of a miscellaneous deduction which has now been eliminated, which sometimes people were utilizing, is we used to be able to include reimbursed job expenses, certain membership dues to clubs or places of that nature, investment expenses, and tax preparation expenses are all gone now. So you cannot deduct those uh, going forward. So that's something to keep in mind when you're utilizing those services or have those types of expenses that you may or may not be really getting a deduction anymore for those items you thought you were. So let's talk about after the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, fewer estates are subject to estate tax. Again, we're in a pretty favorable environment when someone passes away and they wanna pass on their estate compared to where we have been in the past, right? because the lifetime estate and gift exemption amount doubled. So right now we're at $12 million per individual. So what does that mean? That means if my estate is under $12 million, I don't have an estate tax due when I pass away and leave assets to my heirs. 
Okay, it also means that a married couple gets $24 million, right? Because they get double that amount in net worth from the estate tax. Now, keep in mind, again, this is a sunset rule. So this is set to end in 2025 when the exemption amounts will revert back to current levels. So again, keep in mind, there's some opportunities maybe to do some planning today, get some things in order, um, but also keep in mind that the rules could change because it sunsets in 2025. So let's talk about the SECURE Act. What does that stand for? Setting every community up for Retirement Enhancement Act of 2019. And that became a law in December 20th, 2019. So what did that entail? So with a broad range of provisions governing retirement plans, plan participants and individual retirement savers, this legislation brings most significant change to the retirement industry since the Pension uh, Act in 2006. And why is this important? Because the new law is designed to expand access to retirement accounts. It's promoting participation and preserve savings. That's the purpose of why they came in with the whole idea of enhancing the Retirement Act. So here's some of the ideas, right? Most non-spousal beneficiaries now are going to be required to distribute their inheritance uh, accounts that are retirement plans by the end of the 10th year, following the year the account owner dies, right? So that's something new. We used to be able to continue that. There is no requirement for annual distributions like there was in the past. However, the account has to be fully liquidated by the end of the 10th year. So think about this, prior to the new 10-year rule, beneficiaries could opt to stretch, right? Required distributions based on their remaining life expectancy, allowing you to continue to retain tax-deferred status. But this change applies to inherited accounts, both traditional and Roth, for any death of a owner that occurred after 2019. Right? So exceptions to the 10-year rule do apply, and there's a few exceptions that we'll go over here real briefly that if you are a spouse, of course, then you're allowed to take over the uh, deceased person's IRA without the 10-year rule. If you're a beneficiary who's disabled or you have a chronic illness, you're allowed to take it over without following the 10-year rule. If the beneficiary is more than 10 years younger than the deceased, account owner, you have to do it. But if I'm a beneficiary and I'm less than 10 years, so if I have a spouse, that doesn't matter, right? But what if I have a sibling or a relative or somebody who leaves me their retirement plan and we're five years apart in age, I'm not required to follow the 10 rule because I'm less than 10 years uh, within their age, 10 years younger than the deceased owner, right? If the beneficiary is a child who is not a majority age, that child also doesn't have to follow the 10 year rule. However, the minor, once they're a majority age, the 10-year clock on the 10-year rule, just, it does start. But while they're a minor, they don't have to worry about whether or not the 10-year clock has started. And so those are some of the rules that kind of changed prior to the 2019, where the rules were a little different. So we have to keep that in mind when we're inheriting IRAs or when we're thinking about who we're going to leave our retirement accounts assets too. These things are really key to deciding who our beneficiaries should be, how we should set up the accounts in what order, and things of that nature on how they're going to get taxed. Right. So the question is, could we see more changes to the retirement account? So here's a few things that are being considered. Um, some of these are not the rules yet, but just want to put it out there so everyone's aware that this is a possibility that these things could happen, and it will help us in our planning uh, whether you're meeting with your tax advisor, your financial advisor, or your attorneys to figure out if you got the right plan in place to 
account for things that are going to happen potentially going forward, right? So when they passed the SECURE Act, it was introduced with a lot of changes, as we mentioned, the most since 2006. But as a follow-up to that landmark law, a proposal was introduced within the House and Ways Means Committee last October, and they're calling it, the proposal is called the SECURE 2.0. And it's designed to build on the principle of original SECURE Act by expanding access to retirement accounts and promoting participation and preserving our savings. So while the most recent bill largely follows the original proposal from last fall, there's a few modifications, including revenue provisions expanding Roth accounts designed to offset other costs within the bill. So what does that mean? There's a gradual potential increase in the required minimum distribution to age 75. So if we think about the SECURE Act increased it from 70 and a half to 72. So the current RMD or required minimum distribution from an IRA account is 72. But this bill is gonna continue the theory that each year potentially in 2022 to go up to 73 years old, 20, uh, 29 to go up to 74, and then by year 2032 to age 75, that you would be required to start taking distributions, but would not be required prior to that. Okay, again, so the current rule, age 72, you have to start taking your distributions. Um, used to be 70 and a half, but the current rule is 72 mandatory distributions. They're also gonna add additional catch-up provisions. And they're gonna say is when I turn 62 or 63 and I have a 401k plan or simple plans, they're gonna increase my catch-up, which is currently uh, $6,500 for a simple to $10,000 per individual in addition to the amounts I could already contribute. And what a lot of seniors find is they may be busy or they may not, may not pay attention and they got penalized for not taking the distribution that they were supposed to take the required one at age 70 and a half, which is now age 72. And the penalty was 50% for not doing that. So again, it's really important to stay on top of that and kind of be in the loop with your professionals to make sure when you reach a milestone age that you're doing the distributions according to the rules, but they're talking about changing that penalty to as low as 10% potentially in the future if the mistake was somehow a timely manner or you had some extra activity that caused that, okay? And we're gonna expand the qualified charitable distribution to allow you to take a one-time distribution of $50,000 to a charitable annuity or a charitable gift trust. So right now the provision will be indexed. So I'm not gonna get too deep into that, but why that's important is that's an opportunity for you to get money out of your retirement accounts without having to incur taxes and allow those monies then down the road in a manner that you set up to legally contribute that to a charity and they don't get taxed and you didn't get taxed. So kind of keep that in mind in your back of your mind for future reference is the qualified charitable distributions and whether or not you wanna utilize a charitable gift annuity or a charitable gift trust to accomplish that. The other thing they're talking about they wanna do, of course, is expand Roth accounts and add those to retirement plans, and then also allow people to do catch-ups, which are the catch-ups adding extra funds beginning in 2022 to Roth IRA accounts within retirement plans through your employers. You know, so currently employer matching contributions are required to be made only on a pre-tax basis. And the new provision will allow contributions by your employers to be made to your participants on a matching basis in the after-tax, potentially tax-free Roth accounts. And so right now that hasn't happened, but that's what they're potentially proposing. 
All right, risk of higher taxes. So, you know, while we're in a favorable tax environment, we want to think about how can that change and if that is going to change and we need to consider the risk of higher taxes, what steps can we take to prepare for the higher risk of taxes in the future? And what is the relatively short window if we think about that everything that's in play right now is set to expire in 2025 without further action? So remember, there's a lot of fiscal pressure on the federal government to pay for things. And potentially when 2025 comes along, we may not be as in a favorable tax position. And so that's why you need to kind of look at your assets and your estate and your planning and your businesses and figure out if there's some things you can do now that are really key that you may not be able to take advantage of down the road once the provisions change. Here's an example of what kind of fiscal pressure is driving the need for more revenue from the government, right? So let's talk about the federal government and their need to change the tax scenario going forward. And the need is gonna be because they're gonna to need to have more revenue going forward. So right now there's uh, $2.8 trillion is the latest federal budget deficit as it's rapidly approaching you know, $3 trillion that they have in deficit, right? 76% of the government spending is on autopilot. So what does that mean? That means that it's allocated to programs like Medicare and Social Security and it's used to service its interest costs on the current debt. So there's no real easy way for them to cut that because all of those things are automated and automatically happening. And the percentage of the mandatory versus the discretionary spending has been increasing rapidly over the past decade. So think about 76% of their expenses, they have really no ability because they're automated and they're on autopilot that they're required to pay those out, that there's not a lot of room for them to lower their expenses then on the federal government side, which will put pressure, of course, to, to get more tax revenue from taxpayers. Also in 2033, according to Social Security trustees annual report, that Social Security trust fund will be depleted. So what does that mean about the benefits? If they were solely relying on the amount of money coming into Social Security benefits, they would have to cut by about 25% the benefits to the Social Security recipients for it to offset. So again, there's a different things that are going on that would put pressure on the federal government to raise revenue and how do they raise revenue by getting more taxes and what do we want to do as an individual taxpayer is to figure out how we can within those rules pay less pay our fair share so let's talk about the latest developments on the tax policies right so here's the latest development while it appears that the broader tax rates are set to increase an ordinary income were destined to be included in the legislation these items were removed and negotiated away so they had proposed actually things going up, but they're not actually going to go up because they were just proposals that never really got through the system, okay? The new tax, uh, potentially, there'd be a surtax of 5% on high earners. So if someone made over $10 million, they would get 5% surtax. Um, there's a 3.8% surtax expanded to active businesses um, for passive business income. There's the salt increase they're talking about, we're going from 10,000, which we talked about earlier. The salt is, the, remember the state and local tax cap that we have, potentially increasing that to 80,000. And then they're talking about some reductions on small businesses and uh, reductions in how they can do their deducting on their revenue streams and how they're set up, okay? So think about that. There's some things that they're trying to propose that haven't necessarily passed. And there's some latest developments 
that potentially are going to help us in some ways and hurt us in others. And this is just things we want to keep in mind as we move through the tax scenario that we want to be aware of whether or not it's going to affect us individually and what we should be doing uh, to adjust for that. One of the items on here you can see is the elimination of the backdoor Roth uh, strategy, which we've talked about in the past. And that was a way for high income earners to be able to get money into a Roth IRA by using a different system and, and converting non-deductible IRAs. And they're talking about closing that because of course that's a great loophole and a great way for high income earners to get money into Roths that they normally couldn't. So some of those things we just wanna be aware of if they disappear or not so that we can do some planning around that. So let's talk a little bit about planning considerations and strategies. So here's some actionable ideas, right? How are we gonna uh, do some things that we can minimize uh, our tax bill by using popular deductions, take advantage of the lower tax brackets, and then some estate planning. There's things that they're talking about, uh, you might've heard in the news or heard on different uh, areas that they were talking about eliminating the step of cost basis on death, which would mean I would inherit the same cost basis as the person who purchased it, passed away, and then I inherited their stock or investments, which would mean I have a taxable event. You know, so right now that's preserved. So they're talking about leaving that alone and allowing me to have a step up so I don't have to pay capital gains taxes on inherited assets that are appreciated. So hopefully that stays there because that's a really big uh, implication for people who are inheriting very low cost basis assets. And we wanna be able to take advantage of the increase in the annual exemptions as those rise and then do some planning resulting in some of the SECURE Act and retirement plan ideas that we just previously talked about. So let's see how that should look, right? So one of the areas that we're getting a lot of questions about uh, from our clients because there really were impacted uh, seniors or people who were making charitable donations who are taking money out of their retirement plans uh, is how to get money into charities and still get a deduction. So one of the ways this slide uh, is a great presentation of and not to make it too complex, but I'm just gonna give you the simple uh, summary of how it works is that rather than make annual gifts, it's showing us of $10,000, which then you would not get uh, really a deduction because you would have took your standardized deduction, this one to give you enough to get any other deductions, and therefore your annual gifts of $10,000 to a charity wouldn't have really helped you. However, what if you decided to do your three-year contribution all up front in one year, and now it would have a big impact on your tax scenario where you'd get a much bigger deduction, you'd be able to have some benefit of the donation, and then you would not gift in the following two years, and that way you'd get the advantage in one tax season rather than having it drifted over three tax seasons and not giving you much of a benefit. So just things to keep in mind, because that's something that's really uh, changed the landscape with that higher standardized deduction, the other thing that's really changed is donating IRA assets to charities. And again, why is this important? Well, one is as the baby boomers are getting older, right? And people are getting over the age of 70 and a half, we're having to take our distributions or potentially we're taking distributions out of our IRA accounts. And that's causing us to pay income taxes on those. And that's causing us potentially maybe to have our social security benefits taxed. So this is a way for you to utilize a direct gift to the charity out of your IRA rather than it passing to you first and then finding out you don't get to do your deduction of your dues or of your membership or of your donations to a church or a non-profit. 
So what does that mean? The benefit is you get to reduce, your RMD will reduce your adjusted gross income, right? So that's very beneficial for getting your taxes on your social security maybe eliminated, or maybe not worrying about you have as much income when you pay your premium for part B, right? It avoids your thresholds because there's certain thresholds that if you make up to a certain amount of income, you won't be able to deduct a charitable contribution, but if it comes out of your IRA and you do it as a direct donation in this manner, you might find that it becomes a non-taxable event to you. And you might decide that you want to make sure that you can set up some legacy planning and preserve the assets so you can get the benefit of step up and cost basis for your beneficiaries to inherit those assets, right? Because they're not gonna be taxed on those if they get a step up from a capital gains, while the IRAs uh, would be taxable to them and then deciding which assets make the most sense to donate to charities and which assets make the most sense to donate to your heirs. So that's what the, that is all about. And kind of thinking that through and deciding ahead of time so that you have a chance to do some planning, right? Rather than have it be planned for you. And then it isn't always the most beneficial way to do it. Another idea is whether or not it makes sense to do a Roth conversion. So what does that mean, right? Before the end of the year, you can calculate what your taxable income is gonna be. And that will tell you two things. It'll tell you which marginal tax bracket you're in, right? So rather than wait until the following year in January when you start to do all your taxes, maybe you decide you're gonna look at in, at the end of December and decide what tax bracket do I look like I'm gonna be in and how much income can I add and still stay in the lower tax bracket. So this slide is here to show us that they call it before the creeping into the next bracket, right? As you go higher up in income, your rate goes higher up, as you stay down lower, your marginal rate is uh, lower. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to take some taxable IRA accounts and convert them to Roths, pay the taxes now at the lower marginal rates so that you can not incur a higher tax rate later when you're forced to take money out of taxable IRA accounts down the road when potentially your income might be higher. So it's a good exercise to go through, kind of see where you are at the end of the year and the marginal rates and maybe discuss with your tax professional whether you should be thinking about converting taxable accounts to Roth accounts, paying the taxes now, and then doing it at the lower rate, uh, potentially, rather than waiting till you're in a higher rate uh, later on when you have to use the assets, okay? So let's talk about Roth accounts can be at the hedge of risk for higher taxes in the future, right? So why is that? Well. So if you think about given the uncertain of taxes in the future, combined with the fact that most retirees are holding a huge amount of their retire assets, a very large percentage in traditional or pre-tax retirement accounts, the need for diversification will exist for a lot of people to try to figure out how not to have all that money flowing in future years at higher rates, right? So utilizing a Roth strategy can provide tax-free income in retirement and kind of hedge the risk of higher taxes in the future. With the risk of tax rates edging higher in the future, some investors want to consider filling up their tax bracket, right? Like we talked on the previous slide and getting additional income now so that they can utilize tax-free income later and not have this big tax bubble going down the line as they get older and older. And then they're forced to take more and more of that money in the future, pushing them into either higher brackets based on today's tax rates or potentially when rates are at a rate are even higher, in the future, you're gonna get taxed at the future rates, not the current rates, right? So think about, there may be an alternative way for higher income taxpayers to fund or contribute to Roth IRAs. 
Right? Taxpayers who have higher income levels currently are prohibited from going straight into a Roth IRA. So for 2020, think about it, 124,000 for an individual or 196,000 for a couple. If you're above that, you can't do a Roth IRA in a traditional fashion. You can't just open up the Roth IRA and put the money in. So you may wanna consider first funding a non-deductible IRA and then converting it to the Roth IRA. Right? So there's no income restrictions on a conversion and you have adverse effects potentially though if you have other IRA accounts. So again, we need to look at the whole scenario, your whole picture of retirement plans and IRA accounts before you utilize the strategy. But a lot of times it'll make sense for you to make a non-deductible IRA, get the money converted to a Roth, even though you have a higher income bracket. And that's kind of what they call the backdoor way to get into the Roth IRA. So again, these are really important things to consider because in the future, that Roth IRA is potentially gonna be a really nice thing to have that is gonna keep you from paying higher tax rates down the road. Let's talk about estate planning considerations, right? So the doubling of that lifetime exclusion that we uh, mentioned earlier, right? It was $12 million for an individual. It changes the landscapes for a lot of uh, planning for estate and gifts. However, many states, including Minnesota, have a lower death tax in place. So example, Massachusetts is at a million dollars, which would mean that again, if your estate is over a million dollars, you might not have a federal estate, but you're gonna have an estate tax at the state level. So remember, residents and states need to consider that and decide whether they should use some techniques with life insurance to provide liquidity, or they should do other ways to step up their cost basis at death and ways to pass on their property. But to think about that the $12 million is a federal level and you potentially might still have some estate tax planning you'd wanna do at the state level. And ways to uh, address that might be gifting assets while you're alive, right? And carrying that basis over to the person who gets the gift, but still getting it out of your estate. Or maybe setting up certain trusts that may pour over and which may account for a step up in the cost basis, allowing that tax not to happen at a capital gains rate, but actually to pour over so that you did some planning before your death and allow that money to transfer with less taxes due to the heirs and the beneficiaries, especially in states which Minnesota happens to be one of those, where we have a very high tax rate on uh, taxes that are state and uh, trust related, is to make sure you address that and look at those tax uh, planning ideas and estate planning ideas before you pass away, because a lot of the cases you're gonna find the door is not open once you pass away and the beneficiaries and the heirs have no uh, options then because it wasn't done in the planning process when you were able to do that sooner. All right. Let's talk about gifting now. So here's kind of the rule. A lot of uh, clients and a lot of times people are asking, am I gonna get penalized or what's the most I can give away? How much can I gift to my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren? So before uh, it was roughly about $5 million per individual could do the gift tax, right? But since, we're under the new sunset rule. Remember, the rule is we're at $12 million. So we have a $5.5 million excess gift exclusion between now and when it sunsets at the end of 2025. So what does that mean? That means that you could potentially give away that amount of money and you're not gonna affect any estate taxes that would be due when you, when you actually do pass. So again, you wanna do a little planning. This is just a slide to give us an indication of that the 
gift taxing rules are very generous right now and high net worth. Uh, I think in a lot of cases, many of us would consider if somebody has a, a six and a half to $12 million net worth, they're probably higher net worth. And if we're under that, you can see that it might not be as big a deal except at the state level. But if we're in those ranges and we include our assets like our homes and our businesses and our cabins and all the things we've accumulated, we wanna be uh, aware of the fact that there is a sunset provision and it might not be as generous or as easy to gift away in the future when the sunset provision comes back at 2025 or the end of 2025. Now, another area that we wanna talk about that's really key right now is uh, planning for the new 10-year rule on inherited retirement accounts. I mentioned in the earlier part of the presentation that the rules had changed in 2019 about being able to stretch and who could stretch and who can't stretch inherited retirement accounts, right? So let's think about careful designations of your beneficiaries, right? So if you designate a beneficiary who may be in a lower tax bracket and leave other assets such as appreciated stocks outside of retirement accounts and they get a stepped up in cost basis, maybe you wanna leave that to the higher income heirs and your retirement plans to the people who are in a lower income uh, bracket. So right, re past retirement accounts to the more beneficiaries will spread the inheritance balance among more taxpayers too, meaning the more people who inherit the uh, retirement assets, of course, it's a smaller amount that gets spread over more people. So that's also something to consider whether you leave beneficiaries pre-tax retirement accounts or whether you leave beneficiaries after tax uh, investment accounts that might get step ups or might not have any taxes really do at all. And how do you balance that act between those in the higher income brackets as the beneficiaries and those in the lower income brackets? And whether you wanna go through that exercise, because again, it might help control the idea that people are creeping into higher tax rates because of their inheritance, while others would not have necessarily gone into creeping into higher tax brackets. And whether or not you should spread beneficiaries over more than one person or multiple people, and that way allowing them to spread it over multiple years, because again, they have 10 years that they can spread it over if they're not a spouse or they didn't meet any of those um, exclusive rules about who doesn't have to take it at the end of the 10 years, right? So tax efficiency of the, of the distributions, that's what we're trying to accomplish here. And we're trying to look at whether it makes sense to make withdrawals over the 10-year period or not until the end of the 10-year period. Or maybe some heirs might find the rule works differently for each of them based on their current income or future income and whether or not it makes sense to do Roth conversions or not on other assets as well, right? So these are some advanced ideas as well would be charitable remainder trust and leaving IRAs in that fashion or incorporating life insurance and things of that fashion and doing irrevocable life insurance trust. So again, taking all this into account, the whole purpose is to kind of think these in your mind and determine if you think it might be something that you should be looking at and then consider whether now is an opportune time to do some planning right in these areas or whether or not it really isn't gonna affect you down the road. But again, looking at it today. And remember, the estate planning is more than just about our taxes, right? Sometimes it's about control and who inherits and how we want things to flow to family members. So remember, many estates will fall below the exemption, below that $12 million per individual, but that doesn't mean that only individuals and families with these high net worths should be worrying about estate planning or thinking about it. Because the reality is, is really proper estate planning extends well beyond minimizing just our taxes. 
It's critical to have the right documents and to address the risk of unforeseen circumstances that may happen in the transition of your assets and whether or not there's other things that are part of the estate planning process as well, such as you see on the slide, your healthcare directive, your power of attorney and guardianship in case you're worried about minors who might inherit funds and getting all of that in order in addition to worrying about the tax complications that might happen. We also wanna address these things that are on the slide as well. So we have proper planning uh, in place before we actually potentially need them and then find out that we can't undo what's happening because we didn't have the documentation of the proper estate planning in place prior, okay? There's a few things for business owners. Uh, we may have a few business owners on the webinar today. I'm just gonna briefly cover this and the business owners can address this and kind of think about it, but uh, deductions for small businesses, there's something new that came along um, and we'll talk about that. It's called the 20% the 20 of qualified business income or QBI. So again, thinking about whether or not you could utilize that in your business uh, structure and whether or not with your accountant or your tax professional, your tax structure of your business and how it's incorporated will allow you to take some of these new ideas that have come along and allow you to get a little bigger deduction. So I don't wanna spend too much time on it, but here's kind of how it works. It kind of phases out that there's a new rule that you get this 20% deduction up to a certain income threshold, and then that basically goes away. And if there's some areas in your business you could adjust so that you could still qualify for it, and it's a pretty neat way to get an additional deduction that wasn't available uh, in the past, okay? So again, it has to be structured for mostly pass-through entities like S-corporations, sole uh, proprietors and partnerships and, and things of that nature. It doesn't work when you have uh, C-corporations or separate entities, but it's kind of a neat way. And, and, and if you haven't thought about it or been uh, shared with it or enlightened on it, it's kind of a, a great way to save some taxes if you qualify. Other thoughts on there is, is there a way to, when you have net losses, um, to take advantage of converting to Roths. Sometimes people have years where they do their business and they have uh, substantial losses. That may be a great opportunity to convert some of your IRA money um, since it wouldn't be taxed because you may have a negative income stream that year and do a conversion or whether or not you're allowed to avoid the cap on that salt and whether or not uh, you'll get imposed on other taxes. So just keep in mind that you wanna do all of the thorough investigation, especially when you think about if you have a great year and profits are huge, awesome. If you have a different kind of year and, and you have losses, maybe there's some things you could still do that would benefit you in that year that aren't related to your business, but maybe related to your retirement accounts and your investments. So closing thoughts, I just wanted to kind of point out that most taxpayers today, you know, are, we're benefiting from a more favorable tax policy than we have in the past. Not that uh, it couldn't be better, right? But on the other hand, it's been a lot higher and a lot more tax uh, percentages have been paid in the past historically. So we're in a pretty favorable uh, environment right now. So you wanna carefully consider if you can take any uh, heads of the risk of taxes increasing in the future. So when we use the word hedge here, and again, we talked about maybe you wanna have some tax-free growth and Roth IRAs and things of that nature that'll help you offset higher taxes and you wanna work with professionals to assess income in, in, in the state tax planning strategies, right? So get together with the uh, attorney who does estate planning and the tax advisor and the financial planner and think if there's some ways you can do some planning 
so it'll benefit your heirs and help you in the future based on the current laws and, and rules for taxes. All right, I don't think we have any questions popping in. Um, I'm just gonna take a breather here and uh, see if anyone wants to throw a question out there before we wrap up. Um, Landon is online. He's gonna see if anyone has anything. If you wanna type it in the question box, uh, some of the things we talked about or something that you had heard about that we maybe didn't address and seeing if there's a reason that uh, you wanna be able to um, address that right now. I will uh, put out there that you're welcome to visit our website, uh, www.bankcherokee.com. And you can go in there for information. You can find my contact information if you wanted to talk a little bit more, or you could email me and or call here. I office in the Bank Cherokees uh, in North Oaks, in uh, St. Paul and over on Grand Avenue. Well, I wanna thank everyone for joining us. I know I went uh, pretty fast. There's a lot of information to cover. Uh, really, again, I just can't emphasize enough how it might seem that it's a really uh, boring topic, but it's really important that we put a lot of energy into deciding the things that apply to you and the things that don't apply to you. And hopefully you heard a few tidbits that you'd say, hmm, maybe I need to check a little bit further on that and talk to somebody to find out if that could help me improve my situation. So again, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. As uh, some of you know who've attended prior, we do these once a month. We're going to have another webinar next month and you'll get an invite through the email or you can check out our website. And I'd like to thank everyone for sharing the last hour with us and uh, appreciate your time and your uh, effort to log in and take care of learning more about tax situation. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye and thank you and have a great day. If you have any questions, please contact Jonathan Kavaznik at jkavaznik, that's K-V-A-S-N-I-K, at securitiesamerica.com. ESG Players Podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other platforms through the Backroom Studios. That's Backroom Studios, S-T-E-W-D-I-O-S. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member F-I-N-R-A, S-I-P-C, Jonathan B. Kovacnik, C-H-F-C, Registered Representative, Advisory Services offered through Securities America Advisories, Inc., Cherokee Investment Services, Bank Cherokee, and Securities America are separate companies, not FDIC insured, no bank guarantees, may lose value, not insured by any government agency, not bank deposits.